keep it open at that portion of scripture that we read. Matthew chapter 27. Keep it open from verse 45. (coughs) So folks, if I was to ask you this morning, what was the most significant moment of your life what would you say what would you go for the most significant moment of your life would it be the day that you met that special someone the day that you met your your, your spouse would it be the day that you graduated finally from high school or from university would it be the day that you got that job they had always been desperate for. Or maybe it was the day that you first held your child in your arms. What was the most significant moment, most significant day of your life? Well, this morning, we're continuing our Easter series, and we come to surely what is the most significant moment in human history. We come to the cross of Christ. We come to the crucifixion. We come to the death of the Son of God. And and really, this morning, to explore this in a bit more detail, what we're going to do is we're going to examine the stuff. We're going to examine the events that happen around about the cross. We're going to examine sort of the supernatural things. We're going to examine the extraordinary incidents that accompany the crucifixion. And these events that we're going to look at this morning, they happen for a couple of good reasons. Firstly, these supernatural events They happen really to take our breath away. They happen to stop us smack bang in our tracks, to grab our attention and to draw us into this account of Jesus' death. So that's the first reason that these supernatural events happen. Okay? The second reason that these supernatural events happen is to teach us why Jesus died. They happen to teach us more about why Jesus Christ's death was so important. These supernatural events, they show us the significance, the significance of the cross of Christ. And there's three supernatural events that I want us to consider this morning. And so guess what? There will be three points to our message, three points to our sermon. So let's get into this. Let's get into this portion of scripture. Let's consider this most significant moment in human history. And let's consider our first point this morning. And that is point one. The darkness that descended over Calvary. Verse 45. From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, 
darkness came over all the land. Now, one thing you can absolutely guarantee when it comes to the ivory towers of academia, when it comes to scholarship and commentators, is that these guys like to bicker and argue like children. And when it comes to the darkness here that descended over the land, it is absolutely no exception to that rule. Because what you get is a whole host of authors and writers and commentators arguing about what caused the darkness over Jerusalem that day. What caused it? You know, was it a a sandstorm that was whipped up that caused the darkness? Was it perhaps an eclipse? What was it? Was it something else altogether? Well, surely we see that that is missing the point altogether. We can almost say, who cares? Who cares what caused the, the physical darkness that day? What is important is that we understand the darkness to be an act of God. What's important is that we understand that God was behind this descending darkness. So let's be clear. It was a divinely instituted event, okay? But we're given more details about the darkness, aren't we? It says <coughs> that it took place from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. Did you see that? The sixth hour until the ninth hour. Now, I'm sure you know this, folks, but the, the, the clock or the calendar that was used in Israel was entirely different to the clock that we use uh, today. So verse 45 there, it doesn't mean that it was dark in Jerusalem from 6 in the morning until 9 in the morning. That's not what it means. And this is important. We'll come back to this. The sixth hour represented our noon. If you do the maths... The ninth hour represented, of course, three o'clock in the afternoon. So between noon and 3 p.m., darkness instituted by God came over all the land. But why is that? Why is that important? Why is the timing of the darkness crucial? Well, well think about it. Surely, the timing here, it makes the darkness all the more miraculous, doesn't it? Because let's face it, between noon and 3 p.m., that's going to be the brightest and the hottest part of the day, isn't it? You know, this is the, this is the Middle East that we're talking about here. When the sun was supposed to be scorching the earth, you know, when the sun was supposed to be blinding in its intensity. Because his son, the son of God, hung on the cross. The father caused a blanket of darkness, a cover of darkness, to fall over all the land. So it's 
divinely instituted. And it's miraculous. But why did it happen? Why, folks, did darkness come? Well, throughout Scripture, darkness is seen in close connection with the judgment and with the wrath of Almighty God. Let's make sure we've all got that. Throughout Scripture, darkness is seen in close connection with the judgment and with the wrath of God. Now, I'll give you a couple of examples of this. Now, stick with me. We'll just look at a couple of examples here. Stick with me. You ready for these? Judgment and darkness. First one, think Exodus. And think of the episode there where God judged Pharaoh. He judged Pharaoh for not letting the people free. Now, what happened? What did God do? God sent a judgment. God sent ten plagues over Egypt. And what was the ninth of the ten plagues? God judged by sending an intense, almost tangible darkness over the land. So that's the first example. (coughs) That's Exodus. Let's move forward a wee bit in Scripture. Let's get into the prophets. Let's get into Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 5. And Isaiah speaks to us and he gives us in this passage about woe and a passage about the judgment of God. He says this. Listen to this. Therefore the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. And if one looks at the land, he will see darkness and distress. Even the light will be darkened by the clouds. So you get it. It's the same thing. This is the Lord acting in judgment and it is accompanied by darkness. And then the third, last example and most remarkable of all. This is a prophecy of what happened at Calvary. For this, this is Amos. And remember, this was written about 760, 770 years before the cross. Amos says this, in that day, in that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon. I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that remarkable? In a prophecy of a day when we will most clearly see God's hand in judgment, Amos talks of the sun going down at noon and casting darkness over the land. So you see this, folks, don't you? Throughout Scripture, and we see this, there's so many examples, we see it time and time again. When God acts in judgment, there is darkness. And that continues at Calvary. It was dark at the cross because God was acting in judgment. 
And it was dark at the cross, miraculously, because he was acting in judgment over his own son. So no wonder Jesus cries out into that darkness, into that fearful blackness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And is it not true, folks, that somehow we have kind of um, lost sight of this? Have we not lost sight of the, the, the horror of Jesus' death? We've lost sight of it, haven't we? Perhaps maybe because of how it's portrayed in the media. Perhaps because of how the cross is portrayed in films that we watch, or in art, or even in in jewellery. Somehow, we've become desensitised to the scandal of what happened on the cross. Well, we said this last week. We said that this Easter, as a congregation, we should aim to study and look at the Easter story anew. So when we do that, this year, when we picture Jesus Christ nailed to the cross, when we picture this this man in agony and suffering and dying, Let's remember that that took place in the pitch black. You know, that that glimpse of terror that we talked about last week, that glimpse of terror that Jesus got at Gethsemane, it was now at the cross, it was a full-blown experience of hell. It was hell there. And Jesus went through that in the dark. And Jesus went through that for you. So from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the long. Okay, let's move on. Let's consider our next supernatural event here. And we see that in verse 51. Point to the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. So, in the temple in Jerusalem, there was a veil. And this curtain, its purpose was to protect what was called the most holy place. So in Jerusalem, the first century, in the temple complex, had a kind of outer courtyard. And within that was what was called the holy place. And then within that, there was an inner room. This is where God dwelt amongst his people. The inner room. The most holy place. And you see, access to this room, access behind this curtain, it was forbidden. There was only one man allowed behind the curtain. That was the high priest, and he was only allowed behind there once a year in the Day of Atonement. And believe it or not, folks, believe it if you will, 
academics actually agree about the details of this curtain. They agree. Because no matter who you read, they all say that when you and I envisage this barrier, this curtain in the temple, what we've got a picture, what we've got envisage, is something that was enormous. It was a huge, huge veil and barrier. The experts tell us that it was about 60 feet high and about 30 feet wide. And it was heavy, really heavy. Some reports say that it took 300 priests to get it into place. And even if you tied horses to it, the horses could not pull it to the side. So surely, when we consider that, we've got to ask why it was like that. Why was this curtain so thick? Why did it have to be 60 feet high and 30 feet wide? Well, this dividing curtain, protecting the most holy place, It had to be so large because it was there in the temple to represent the sin of the people of God. It was there to represent our sin. Isaiah 59 tells us this. It says, your iniquities, your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. A separation. And this curtain... It was there to represent that our sin, this veil, has blocked the path to God. But folks, look look what happens at the cross. Look what happens at the very precise moment of Jesus' death. This temple curtain tears. The veil is rent. Now, why? Why did it tear at the point of Jesus' death? Was it just like these old guys of the Old Testament? Remember these guys? Remember Ezra on our Sunday nights? You know, in mourning, he he tears his robes in anguish. Was this curtain temple, was this just an illustration of divine mourning? Or is there more to it than that? Well, it's not. Hebrews 10 tells us that because of the cross, a new way of access has been opened up to God. Hebrews 10 tells us that, and get this, that at this exact point in history, Jesus' body, as he takes upon himself our sin, his body was that spiritual barrier between us and God. And in his death, in the tearing of life from Jesus Christ, that barrier, the temple curtain, was torn away. Isn't it marvelous imagery? Isn't it 
an incredible and a marvellous truth. I'll read you Hebrews 10.20. It tells us that a new and living way has been opened up for us through the curtain that is Jesus' body. So the path is now clear. And folks, notice, if you will, the, the, the details that were given about how this curtain is torn. Now, the first time I read this, I thought, There's, it seems like superfluous detail here we're given. We're given details here that, why, why are we given them? Well, it tells us that the, the curtain is torn from top to bottom. Why are we told that? Why aren't we just told that the curtain is torn? Why are we told that it's torn from top to bottom? Well, it tells us two things. One, it shows us that the initiative, the initiative for this newly available access, the initiative comes from above. The initiative comes from God. You see, the curtain's not torn from below, is it? The curtain's not torn by man. Sin's too great a barrier for us to tear. No, it is torn from above. It is God's hand that has cleared this path back to him. And then secondly, that the curtain is torn from top to bottom. It establishes the sufficiency of Jesus' work. What does that mean? The sufficiency of Jesus' work. Well, you see, it's torn from top to bottom, isn't it? Now, if a curtain is torn from top to bottom, it's ruined, isn't it? Matthew doesn't tell us that there was a tear in the curtain. He doesn't tell us it was torn a bit. He tells us that it was torn through. That it was torn from top to bottom. You see, the atoning work of Jesus Christ, it has irreversibly destroyed the barrier of sin. Irreversibly destroyed it. His work was sufficient. His work was entire and complete. And so he is justified when he cries from Calvary, it is finished. It is finished. Friends, the tearing of the curtain is a stunning, stunning event. It points to the cross and it points to the fact that the things going on in your life, those sins and the wickedness, they can be torn away. Okay, the darkness in the curtain. Let's close just looking at a third thing. And it's something that we pass over quite frequently. The third point is the raising to life of the holy people. The raising to life of the holy people. It's an amazing event in verse 52, isn't it? That accompanied Jesus' death. Verse 52, I'll read it. <clears throat> the tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. So let's get that clear. Jesus died and holy people rose from the dead. And surely the significance of that is pretty plain, isn't it? It's quite clear. 
this raising of the holy people, it happens to show that through the work of the cross, that death is not the end for the people of God. These people are raised to show that the cross means that death is not the end for the people of God. And we should think about an important thing that happens here, an important detail, Matthew. And if, if your Bibles are open, you can follow me with this. If not, just, just listen. If your Bibles are open, if you look at the end of verse 51, end of verse 51, See what happens there. And then, turn over to the next chapter. Chapter 28 and verse 2. And see what happens there. Verse 2, chapter 28. You see that both verses have something in common, don't they? Both verses detail the occurrence of earthquake an earthquake you see chapter 27 the very ground shakes at the death of Christ and in chapter 8 the ground shakes again at the resurrection of that same Christ now as Christians um, we can make a mistake quite frequently we can separate the cross from the tomb. We can talk a lot about the cross of Jesus Christ, but we can, quite rightly so, but we can neglect or push to the side his subsequent resurrection. But we see here in the way that these events are tied together that we mustn't view the death of Jesus independently from that empty tomb. These, these events are absolutely tied together. You see, you can't have the resurrection of the Son of God without his death. That's obvious. But think about it. You can't have... You can't have the death of someone who claims to be a saviour. You can't have the death of someone who claims to give eternal life unless he is subsequently himself raised from the grave. And so we see these events tied together. We see at the cross, the death is conquered. You know, the final nail, if you like, is driven into death's coffin. And in this raising the life of the holy people, we see what that means for us. We see what all of this means for the people of God. You see, because of the cross, friends, our tombs also will be broke open. You know, we're, we're promised things in Scripture as God's children. You know, we're promised, Ezekiel 37, he says, Oh, oh my people, I am going to open your grave. It says in First Thessalonians 4, get this, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. 
Folks, take this away with you today. Get this stuff. Death is nothing for the people of God. Death is a temporary measure. Death is just momentary. Our tombs are going to be broken open. We are going to rise. We are going to meet our Savior. And we are going to be roused to an eternal salvation. So folks, we've seen three events this morning. We've seen three events that surround the cross. But let's not forget them in the center of all of this. There is a man there, isn't there? There is a man nailed to the cross. There is a man who is suffering, a man in judgment, a man who is bleeding and dying. So surely when we see that, surely our cry has got to be the same as the centurion in this portion of scripture. He sees Jesus on the cross and he shouts out, surely, surely he was the son of God. My friend, where are you spiritually this morning? You know, perhaps you came here not expecting to consider life after death. Perhaps you came here this morning not considering your salvation. Well, friends, even if that is true just now, this morning, make now the time that you walk over that destroyed temple curtain and into the arms of a waiting and a loving God. And see if you do that this morning. You will be able to praise God that your sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. And you will be able to praise God that you have sure and concrete future awaiting you in glory. But you will also be able to praise God that you can look back on today as being the most significant moment in your whole life. Friend, have you done it? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you? If not, cry out today, surely he is the Son of God. Let's pray.